If we've never met, my name is Benger. I'm one of the pastors here at Flourishing Grace, and uh, it's great to see you all today. How are you guys doing? Come on now. Um, I'm excited for today. Uh, if, if this is your first Sunday or maybe you've missed a few weeks, we've been walking through uh, a series this summer through the book of Acts, at least through kind of like the first third of the book of Acts. It's a long, long book. And so we're not going to get through all of it this summer, but we're walking through kind of the first part of it. And um, before we dive in, just to kind of put your finger where, the, uh, where we're going to be in Acts chapter 5, if you want to turn, Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 17, we're going to be there through the end of the chapter. If you don't have a Bible, if you forgot yours, there's one under Underneath your seat, it's a blue Bible, and we're going to be on page 1011 in that Bible. If, uh, if you don't have one at home, if you need a Bible, um, we would love for you to take that one. Um, it's yours. Grab a pen. Put your name in the front of it. That's your Bible. That's what they're there for. We want them to walk out the door. Um, but before we dive in, um, I want to kind of just talk a little bit about something uh, that, that we all have in common. At least I think we all have in common. And, and that's this. At some point in our life, uh, and, and for most of us, at multiple points in our life, we've asked the question, what do I do next? What am I supposed to do? What do I do next? Now, there's different kind of weights to this question depending on where you ask it or what situation you're in, right? If you're like, man, okay, you know, I'm just kind of finishing the end of this service. I'm really hungry. Um, where am I going to have lunch? Your what do I do next question is like, you know, where's open on Sunday? Where can I go get some lunch afterwards, right? There's weightier ways to ask that question. Maybe you're walking through something, you're going to school, and you're like, what am I supposed to do next? What classes am I supposed to take next semester? Am I supposed to continue on in school? Maybe you're wondering if you're supposed to go back to school. Um, maybe you're in college and you're thinking through majors. Um, I think back about nine years ago, um, my family, we lived in Colorado, and we knew that you know, God has something for us next. Uh, I had finished graduate school looking for a position and, and um, just kind of figure out where am I going to be. And, and, and basically, it was, it was a clean slave, just applying for jobs. And it was like, God, where do you want us to go? What do I do next? Some of you ask this question in, in the midst of, of sorrow or grief, right? When, when something difficult happens, uh, maybe it's divorce, uh, the, the, a relationship that has ended, somebody who has passed away. Uh, maybe you're, you're between jobs and, and you're just like, what am I supposed to do? What do I do next? Now, I don't want to warn you. I'm going to pull kind of a bait and switch on you because this morning, what we're going to talk about really doesn't have much to do with answering this question, what do I do next? Right? Is that a bad way to start a story? Maybe it is. I don't know. Like, who is this? When does Josh get back? Somebody please get a real preacher up there. But here's why I bring it up. I think this is a really good question, what do I do next? But I think there's a more significant question that we miss sometimes that we, we should ask. What do I do next is a good question, but I think there's, there's one that is weightier. And the passage that we're going to walk through today, what Luke is going to, to, to walk us through, I think at the end of that passage, I'm going to suggest maybe a better question. It's not that what do I do next is, is a bad question, because if, if you don't ask what do I do next, you're going to end up without a job at 47 living in your parents' basement because you've never bothered to ask what do I do next? What am I, what am I supposed to be doing? It's a good question. But I think many times we get stuck there. And so I'm going to suggest, after walking through what we have today in, Luke, in Acts chapter 5 that Luke has for us, I'm going to suggest a different question. Okay, you guys with me on this one? 
Awesome. Now, as we dive into this passage, um, Luke has been walking us through the beginning of the uh, kind of the early history of the church. If this is your first Sunday or maybe you've missed uh, most of this summer, um, Luke was one of the authors of, of one of the biographies that we have in, in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, one of the biographies of Jesus, commonly known as the Gospels. And so for Luke, I mean, I guess his book was such a bestseller, uh, Gospel of Luke, that he decided to write the book of Acts as well. The book of Acts is kind of a sequel to his Gospel. And basically, if the Gospel leads up to the death and resurrection of Jesus, the book of Acts is, is basically what happens after Jesus ascends into heaven and the, the birth of the early church, kind of this, this history. And the passage right before we're going to walk through today, Luke kind of gives a summation of what's been happening. All these people are coming to know Jesus. Um, People are experiencing incredible things, incredible healing. God is up to something big, and and God's power is moving, and people are coming to know Jesus. And that's where we pick up today. Now, we're going to be in Acts chapter 5, verse 17. And if you would, because we believe this is the word of God, if you would please stand, if you are able, out of the reverence of the word of God. And as as I read along, would you follow along as well? Uh, Chapter 5, verse 17 in the book of Acts. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with them, these are, these are leaders of the temple, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them into public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out, and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. When they'd heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. This wasn't our fault. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they are afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you fill Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter And the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses to these things. We've seen them, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they had heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. 
So they took his advice, and when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. So before we get to our question uh, this morning, um, there's something that, that I want to point out. If you've followed along with us, and indeed if you kind of read the entire book of Acts, what you'll see as Luke is recording history, Luke was a physician by trade, but he was, he was a detail-oriented guy, and so as he sat down to write this history, details were super important to Luke. But it wasn't just for the sake of detail. Luke, throughout the book of Acts, brings up several themes that he's hoping that we, the readers, will pick up as we walk through this. Oh yeah, he's, he's talking about this again. Oh yeah, here's this theme again. And, and as we walk through the passage today, it struck me that there's really three of these themes that, that Luke talks about throughout the entire book of Acts that are also addressed in this passage. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about three of these themes, and then we're going to find out what this question is, maybe this better question that, that I'm going to suggest that we get from this passage. You with me? You follow? So here's the thing. As we start this out, um, Luke records something that, that's really important. I mean, this is a long passage. We just stood for a long time. We're like, Luke, is this ever going to end? Why are these details important? Well, I think there's, again, three things that Luke is, is walking us through. And the first one is this. God's miraculous power moves the gospel forward through the Holy Spirit. Now, what's, what's the gospel? The gospel is just another word for, for good news. This good news is the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth. He lived the life that we never could live. He lived a sinless and perfect life. And us, we who deserve death because of our sins, he died the death that we deserved. Then he rose again from the dead so that we could live with God forever, that we could be cleansed of our sins and, and that our brokenness, our sin, sinful selves could be healed and washed by the blood of Jesus. That's the good news. God's miraculous power, and I think they're going to be up on the screen here, God's miraculous power moves the gospel forward through the Holy Spirit. Now here's, here's where I get that from in this passage. I, we, we start off and all of a sudden these apostles, they're arrested again. In fact, uh, a few weeks ago we heard how John and Peter were arrested. So they're kind of getting used to this whole getting arrested thing. Except for this time they, they arrest the whole band of these church leaders. These ones that won't shut up about talking about, about Jesus and the fact that he rose again from the dead. And they put them in the public prison. And this, this, uh, the next day they're planning on convening this council. And not just a small interrogation, but this is, this is kind of court. This is the whole senate of Israel. Israel. And, and it's almost Luke, as he records this, I imagine that, that um, God is, is looking at this prison and, and he says, oh look, they, they, they shut my guys up in prison. They were telling people about Jesus and they put him in prison. Isn't that cute? It's a jail. And these are prison bars. That's, that's so cute that they think this is going to stop this movement. And God sends an angel. He opens up the prison. He lets them out and he says, okay, now go back and do the very thing that got you arrested in the first place. Now can I just Point out, this is not what you and I would do. Maybe you're different. Okay, maybe I can just speak for myself. But can I just point out that when we uh, experience discomfort, and we'll address this again in a few minutes, but as we experience discomfort, when we kind of get out of this trouble, we would be like, oh, whew. man, we got to lay low for a while. But these guys, they go back to the temple, probably where they were arrested from in the first place, and they keep telling people about Jesus. Now, 
It's God's miraculous power. This, this was God working and opening up these prison doors. It is God's miraculous power who moves the gospel forward. It is God working. This is God's idea through the power of the Holy Spirit. It is God providing the power and the means for this gospel to grow, for, for people to come to faith in Jesus. Now, as we hear this, and you're sharp people, you look really intelligent, kind of awake because it's the 11 o'clock service, okay? You're probably asking the same question I am. If it's God who's working, if it's God's supplying the power, if it's his power through the Holy Spirit, what are you and I doing? I mean, I'm just me. I mean, I have a feeling that if Jesus walked in right now, you guys would be like, can, can Jesus talk instead of Benjamin? I mean, like, why, what, do, what part do we have to play in this? I mean, why does God use us anyways if it's his power? Well, I think Luke gives us a clue of that. Way back in the first week when we started talking about this, um, we went through Acts chapter 1 and, and kind of stuck in one verse. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It'll be up here on the screen. And this is what Luke said. The, the followers of Jesus, uh, after he rose again from the dead, before he ascended into heaven, they're like, so what's going to happen, Jesus? Like, are you going to bring in your kingdom now? Is this, are we going to kick out the Romans? And he's like, it's not for you to know the day or the time. And then he says this. But you will receive power... When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Right? Now, the first part of this we've already covered. It is God's power. Right? When I plug in a light, it's just receiving power. It's just receiving that power, and the light works. If I unplug that light, it doesn't work anymore. We receive power. But God says, listen, you're receiving power so that you will be my witnesses. You're going to be the ones. God in his wisdom has designed the, the way that we work, has designed his gospel to be spread primarily through relationships, from person to person. I mean, this is incredible. I mean, I wouldn't have designed it this way because I mess up all the time, and I, I'm guessing you do too. But why would he do that? Now, here's the thing. Sometimes... When we think, okay, so God's using us, we get into this trap of thinking that it is us who is working. That the more that God uses us, we start to think, man, isn't that amazing? And, and it goes from, isn't God amazing, to, to beginning to believe that, man, aren't I amazing? Now, I don't know about you, but, but this happens a lot among kind of the, the, the world of ministry leadership. The way that we talk often sometimes is that if, if we can just do what's happening over here, we see, man, God is doing something over here. So if I could just replicate what's happening, if I can just kind of crack the code and figure it out, then God has to work. That's no, not the way it works. It's God who is working. It's God's power through the Holy Spirit. But just like that lamp that plugs into the wall, we just simply receive the power. He asks us just to be willing and able and be his witnesses. Just talk about what we have seen. Second theme that Luke brings up in this passage is this. The gospel, this good news, is God's mission in the world. The gospel is God's mission in this world. And again, I think they're going to be up here on the screen. But as we, uh, as we walk through this and we see, oh, this is, this is God's idea. What God is up to in the world, what God is doing, is reconciling the world to himself. 
This was his idea. And what's interesting is the way Luke records this, I just imagine as he's writing this, he kind of has, you know, kind of his tongue in his cheek and chuckling to himself. Because you know the one who, who kind of discovers this in this passage? It's the one who isn't a follower of Jesus. It's Gamaliel. As, as the apostles are rounded up, right, so, so they're put in the prison. God breaks them out of prison. They go back to the temple at daybreak, and they tell people about Jesus, and, and they discover that they're there. And so the guards come, and what's really interesting is they come up to the followers of Jesus, to these early church leaders, and say, excuse me, um, all these people really like you, so could you please arrest yourselves? And for some reason, they do it, and then they, they follow them into this council. And as they're being questioned, and, and, and the leaders say, listen, why are you still telling people about Jesus? And oh, by the way, why do you keep telling people that we're the ones that handed over Jesus? And Peter's like, well, because you were the one that handed over Jesus to Rome and got him crucified. And that infuriates, it infuriates these religious leaders who are trying to squash this Jesus movement. And Gamaliel, who we're told is a Pharisee, wasn't really involved too much in the temple, but apparently he's on the council because he's an elder, he's, he's respected by many people. And so what he says carries weight, and he's watching this. He's like, man, these guys are going to be torn limb from limb. And so he says, let's, let's get these guys out of here. Let's talk just among this religious council. He says, he says guys, we've been through this before. Do you guys remember Thutis? They're like, well, that was a while ago. Yeah, he rose up. He, he, he had this revolt, and it was squashed. He was actually killed by Rome. Nothing came of it. Yeah, I do remember that. Do you remember Judas, the Galilean? There was this census, which was what Rome did. They tried to count, the, they wanted to count the people so that they could figure out how much more they could tax the people of Judea. And he wasn't having anything of that, and he revolted against Rome, wanted to kick Rome out. Yeah, I remember him. It was squashed. The movement died with him. And then he says this in verse 38. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Now, as far as we know, this guy Gamaliel wasn't a follower of Jesus, never became a follower of Jesus. And we don't know his motives. What we do know about Pharisees is that in addition to really being, man, we, we got to follow the law, we want to figure this out, um, they also, were, their theology was kind of, man, God's going to do his thing and we're going to do our thing. And our job is just to be as obedient as possible. And we try not to get involved in politics or, or, or any of these fights or anything like that. It was kind of hands off. So we do know that's part of why he said this. Like, man, let's just see what happens. But I think there was something more than that because he's thinking, man, I've seen these movements, but I've never seen healings like this before. Right? I've seen guys put in jail and break out of jail, but I've never seen what it seems to be God breaking them out of jail. And he says, listen, if this movement is of God, you will not overthrow it. In fact, you may be fighting against God because the gospel is God's mission and this world is what he is up to. He is in the business of reconciling people to himself through his son, Jesus. As we walk through these first two themes, many of us, I don't know about you, but as I read this, I'm like, man, this is so cool. 
I mean, I don't know about you, but I've sometimes read the book of Acts. I've sometimes read the letters of Paul in the New Testament. I'm like, man, why isn't it like this anymore? Why, why, don't, why can't we see this many people come to know Jesus? Isn't this amazing? Look at all that God is doing. This is incredible. But I, th- I think we stumble over this third theme that Luke brings up in this passage. And we miss it, honestly, because um, where most of us were born and where most of us were raised and the culture most of us has spent our entire lives in, I think we miss this. And that's this. That the growth of the gospel is often accompanied by suffering. The growth of the gospel is, is often accompanied by suffering. After Gamaliel says, man, we're going to let him alone, they say, okay, that's, that's fine, but we're still going to punish these guys because we told them not to say anything about Jesus, and they won't shut up about Jesus. So maybe if we beat them a little bit, they'll be scared, and they'll stop telling people about Jesus. And so they were beaten. And, and, and Luke kind of skips over this because he assumes that the people reading this know what he meant. But for us, this, this was no slap on the wrist. To be beaten was to be whipped. And it very well might be that they received the maximum sentence that the Jews were able to give, which was 40 lashes minus one. The Old Testament says, you're not supposed to, 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 to whip somebody more than 40 times, and so they always did. Well, let's do 39, just to be safe. And the way that this would work is they would be whipped twice in the back with a calfskin whip, and then it would reach around the next whip, the next lash would come around to the front. And that would happen 13 times. And they would begin to bleed, and and it would leave scars. And then do you notice what happens? Verse 41, they leave the presence of the council when they're allowed to go, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Then they go back to, to what they were doing before, telling people about Jesus. Can we just be honest? for a minute? I think for, for those of us, maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but, but I see this time and time again. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, we have lodged, if we've spent our entire lives in this country, we have lodged in our theology this idea that if we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, and if God is moving, then things are going to be easier for us. That more faithfulness to God equals more comfort. That us doing what we're supposed to be doing means that God's going to make things work things out for us. And make no mistake about it, God gives good gifts and he longs to bless his children. But when we read through the New Testament, especially the book of Acts, what we find is the growth of the gospel is always accompanied by suffering. Many of us don't have a place in our theology for that kind of thinking. I mean, maybe if something bad happens, we say, well, God's going to get me through this, and and I know that that for some reason it's happening. God has a reason, even if I can't see it, and we kind of suffer through it. But there's no way that we rejoice because we suffer. I mean, have you ever rejoiced in the midst of suffering? That's exactly what they do. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. I think Luke chooses the the word dishonor because this wasn't just, man, this one punishment. They received scars, and they would bear these marks as criminals. Every time somebody saw them, they said, man, what did you do? 
this point, we come back to where we started and figuring out what this, this question is. Not just, what am I supposed to do next? But let me submit to you, and this isn't, this isn't specifically in the text, but, I, but as I read through this this week, and as I said, man, I, I read this, and, and there seems to be this gap between what I read here and what I experience in my life, and I think the difference is this. Instead of asking, what do I do next? A greater question is, what will I give my life to? What will I give my life to? Because this idea of the gospel, that that God is reconciling the world to himself, it is God supplying the power through his Holy Spirit, it is God's mission in the world. That is what he is up to. This is his mission in the world. And nothing is going to stop it. So why wouldn't we throw ourselves behind this? Why wouldn't we say, man, this is what what God is up to? I want to be a part of this. Let me suggest that many of us in this room, those of us who would call ourselves followers of Jesus, we have given our life to Jesus. And we have received because of that, because we submitted our life to Jesus, given our life to Jesus, we've received forgiveness because we say, man, I count Jesus' righteousness as my own. Not because of anything I have done, but because of what Jesus did for me on the cross. That's great. And you're forgiven. There's a difference between that and saying, God, I want to give my life to what you are up to in this world. I want to give my life to this gospel. The the hard thing about this is I've got no three-step plan to help you apply this. It's not like, okay, this is is what I'm going to do. What are the three things? We'll do this, do that. That's just not the way it works. Because it doesn't mean that, that we stop our careers. It doesn't mean that we stop raising families. It doesn't mean that we, we stop going to school or whatever it is. It doesn't mean that we stop dating. It doesn't mean that, that we're here 24-7 in this building. It means that we're out there and we are giving our life to what God is up to in this world. And how that looks in each of our lives will be very, very different. It doesn't necessarily mean that your career is going to change. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to move. It might. What it means is that instead of pursuing a career, you use your career and your skills for your ultimate purpose, your ultimate mission, which is to see people reconciled to God through Jesus, that you are of the business of seeing this gospel grow. For some of us, it means just just a change in how we view things, how we view our time, how we view our resources, how we view our homes, how we view our families, how we view our money. For some of us, it, it will mean extreme change. Because a question that we need to ask before we can ask, what am I going to give my life to? We need to first ask, what am I currently giving my life to? Somebody followed you around this week. Somebody saw how you spent your time, how you treated people, what you you did when you experienced difficulty, how you spent your money. If if somebody just followed you around, what would they say? And this is is what Benjamin's given his life to. 
Because if somebody spends enough time with you, you can't fake it anymore. And is there a gap between what you are currently giving your life to and what we see here? Just giving your life for the sake of the gospel. Again, it, it, it might mean extreme differences in how you live your life. I'm reading a book right now called A Hole in the Gospel. And, and what it is, is it's, uh, it's written by Richard Stearns, who's the president of World Vision, which is a nonprofit, large worldwide uh, organization that tries to, through the name of Jesus and in the name of Jesus, alleviate poverty and hunger throughout the world. And before he became president of World Vision, Richard Stearns was a very successful CEO of, of, of a dish company. Because apparently you can spend lots of money on, on dishes. I had no idea. He made a lot of money doing this. And he talks about, in the first part of this book, how his world was wrecked when he was asked to become president of World Vision. Because it meant a huge cut in salary. It meant a huge, say, a huge uh, um, different living of standard of living. It meant staying no, saying no to many of these opportunities that he had coveted his whole life. But he knew that's what God was asking him to do. So we can fake it. We can come to church and say, I'm just living the victory. We can give a little bit of our resources. We can give a little bit of our time. But what are you giving your life to? May I suggest to you that there is no more worthy cause, there is no better thing to give your life to than to the gospel. And again, Jesus may have forgiven you or you may have submitted yourself to, to him and, and, and said, yes, Jesus, because of what you've done on your cross, uh, I can no longer just rest on myself for my own righteousness. It is you. You have forgiven me. Your blood has cleansed my sin. And that's true. But could it be that even now Jesus is whispering to you and says, listen, what are you giving your life to? I have to confess, through the last eight or nine weeks or however long it's been that we've been walking through this book, as we, as we meet about these messages uh, throughout the week and, and, and as I prepare the ones that I've been giving, I, I think, God, there's, there's this gap between what I read here and, and what's going on in my life and what's going on in the life of our church. And, and listen, I understand there's differences. There's differences in culture, absolutely. And we shouldn't make the mistake that every time we read something in here, uh, just assume that this is what we're supposed to go and do in that you know, sometimes it's describing something. There's people who do really terrible things in here that we shouldn't go and do, right? The question is, what is Luke describing and what is he prescribing for us? But to be honest, sometimes we can think through those things and almost talk ourselves out of what God would have for us. I think that as Luke describes these events, he's nudging us. He says, look at what these people, these early fathers of Jesus, are, they're giving their life to. How can you do anything different? For me, the gap is that many times what I'm giving my life to is my own comfort, my own notoriety, 
my own success, my own desires. And again, this doesn't mean that you have to immediately change careers. You can't do your hobbies. You're not allowed to play Fortnite or golf anymore, okay? What this means is every single pursuit, if we give our life to the gospel, every single pursuit becomes secondary. And we begin to view our decisions through this lens of what am I giving my life to? Because all of this is temporary. Don't you want to give your life to something significant? I can think of nothing more significant than seeing people who are far from God come to a saving knowledge and a saving relationship of Jesus Christ our Lord. It's God doing it. It's his mission in the world. But he's invited you and he's invited me to come along for that might be in the area of, 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 of justice and, and, and righting some of the wrongs in this world of poverty and of hunger. It might mean just walking across your office to another cubicle, somebody that you know, God's been nudging you, I gotta talk to this person. And it might be that you've been using your gifts and your skills that God has given you for your own benefit. And he wants you to start using those for the sake of the gospel. Wouldn't it be incredible if we were the kind of community who individually and as a group of followers of Jesus that determined we were going to spend our years on earth, we were going to spend our resources, we were going to spend our skills that God has given us, the gifts that God has given us, we were going to spend it for the sake of the gospel. And if we suffer, we suffer. If we experience discomfort because of that, we experience discomfort. And we don't just get through it, we rejoice that we were counted worthy to do it for the sake of the name. May this be the kind of community we are, the kind of people we are. That we forsake the things of the world for the sake of seeing people come to know this Jesus who died for you and me and rose from the dead. Let me pray for us. God, I confess, I, I read these words and I think, man, how cool would that be? But when it comes to simply handing over my life for the sake of your son Jesus, that, that people would know him, I am much more comfortable sitting in my seat knowing that I'm forgiven and just kind of whittling away the years until I see you face to face. God, help me not waste these few years that you have given me here. Help us not waste these few years that you have given us here. May we spend them. May we invest them. May we hand them over to you. May we say, these are not ours, these are yours. God, would you please use them as few as they may be, may we use ourselves as weak and as broken as we may be for the sake of your gospel, of this good news that Jesus came and died that we might live. God, we are weak. Honestly, we often don't know what to do next. 
But God, would you take these feeble offerings of our lives and our years and our resources and our jobs and our families and our schools, would you take these offerings that we give you and would you multiply them? And would we rejoice when we see what you have done? It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Let all the people say, amen. Amen.